to Elevate Louisiana Engage podcast. Elevate Louisiana was founded earlier this year to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello, I'm your host, Julie Stokes. Today, we are recording the first episode in a series on the Louisiana budget. Our guest joining us today is Jay Darden, Louisiana's Commissioner of Administration. In this capacity, he serves pretty much as the state's chief operating officer. Um, Commissioner Darden was elected twice as Louisiana's Lieutenant Governor and previously served four years as Louisiana's Secretary of State, 15 years as a state senator, and three years as a Baton Rouge Metro Councilman. He chaired the state, I'm sorry, he chaired the Senate Finance Committee and in 2003 was named National Republican Legislator of the Year. Pretty impressive, I must say. Um, he's an attorney and a member of the Baton Rouge High School Hall of Fame, the Manship School Hall of Fame, the LSU Hall of Distinction, the Louisiana Political Hall of Fame, and the Louisiana Justice Hall of Fame. Again, it's been such a great career. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome, Commissioner Darden. Thank you, Julie. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on this new organization that you put together. Thank you so much. Um, I guess, you know, we'll just start out with, you know, give us an idea of what's involved in the state budget preparation uh, and what you think are the characteristics of a sound budget. So just kind of the process. All right. Let me, uh, let me start with the slideshow here. Um, this is fairly obvious, but the anatomy of a sound budget is to make sure that you're going to balance your revenue with your expenditure. That's very important, obviously. And from a state standpoint, it's important to have a Recurring revenues match recurring expenses. This is what, what got us into some trouble in the previous administration where one-time money was used to pay for ongoing expenses. And when those one-time monies ran out, obviously there was not money to take care of the expenses. And that's why we inherited the billion-dollar-plus problem when Governor Edwards first came into office. Um, so you got to keep an eye on that all through the process. And I'll talk about the monitoring component of that in just a second. And get us to the next slide here. Um, so we have limitations on, on our state budget, and it's appropriate to have that. We have two constitutional budget limits, a revenue limit and the expenditure limit. Uh, the revenue limit is much more restrictive uh, in the one that we have to live with when building the budget because the law properly requires us to have a balanced budget at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year. So we must present a budget that is balanced based upon a revenue forecast. And that revenue forecast is determined by the Revenue Estimating Conference. Revenue Estimating Conference created in the Constitution has four members. The governor's designee, which is the commissioner of administration, the president of the Senate, the speaker of the House, and an independent economist who comes from one of the state's universities. Uh, Jim Richards served, Richardson served in that capacity since the beginning of the REC until last year when he retired. And we now have Dr. Stephen Barnes who was at LSU and recently moved to ULL, and he is now our economist. Um, a unanimous vote is required for any actions by the REC, which is important because it, it doesn't allow for any dissension. There has to be an agreement uh, on everything that the REC enacts. Um, the revenue limits established by adopting the official forecast of the state general fund uh, for the current year and the subsequent year 
following as well as a, a prediction, and it's really just a guess of what the three out years might look like. Uh, constitutional and statutory dedications for the current year and the next fiscal year are included, as well as fees and self-generated revenues. The state has a general fund, which is basically the tax money, sales tax, uh, income tax, severance tax. And then we also have dedicated funds, which are legislatively designated for a particular purpose. Um, and then we also have fees and self-generated revenue, like tuition at the universities and fees that are paid by people for certain services that are offered. And the revenue limit, it's important to note, this cannot be changed by the legislature. Once the REC establishes the revenue level, that's it. That's what the budget is going to be for the year. Now, there's also an expenditure limit. It's set forth in the Constitution as to how you go about doing this. I won't go into a lot of detail about this, but it basically puts a limit on the amount of money that can be spent. And it's obviously typically greater than the amount of money that we have to spend. So uh, that typically the revenue side is going to be less than what that expenditure limit would be. Uh, and there's a growth factor built into the expenditure limit. There was a proposed constitutional amendment on the November ballot that would have changed definitionally the expenditure limit that was voted down by the people. So it, it's going to stay just like it has been. You know, Commissioner, I had one question um, back on the REC or the Revenue Estimating Conference. That, um, I know for the life of that, of the REC, there's been able to to strike an agreement between all the parties that are on REC and go into session with a budget in hand or a budgeted revenue estimate in hand. And has, I know that that was an issue uh, for the last few years. And has that resolved or has there been an accepted budgeted uh, revenue that's been accepted since yes. lately? But the new administration answered that is yes. And you, what you're remembering is exactly correct in the previous administration. Uh, we did not have agreement on a revenue estimate. So the governor was not in a position to present an executive budget that actually balanced with the revenue forecast. It was that never happened before. It was uh, very awkward situation for everybody. We, we got through it, but uh, by the hardest in, in presenting a budget that technically was not the quote executive budget because we didn't have a forecast for the year. Uh, with the new legislative leadership, we have not had that problem. We, we have reached agreement on a forecast, and I think we'll continue to be able to do so. REC is going to meet again in the second week of January. We're not meeting here in the month of December because. All four of us recognize that there's so much uncertainty with this budget and we're trying to minimize in-person meetings uh, because of the resurgence of the pandemic. And so we're going to wait until the second week of January. And at that meeting, we will revise the forecast for the current year. Hopefully, it'll stay close to where it is. And we'll establish a new forecast for the year that's going to begin on July 1st. And that revenue forecast for the next fiscal year will be what the executive budget is based on. And we present it to the legislative uh, joint committee on the budget in February. So that's a little spark the entire process. And this kind of gives you the, the cycle, like what we're talking about. It's a good segue into this because right now in the month of November, the departments are giving us their budget requests. And our staff is going through those and preparing their recommendations to me for what the budget ought to look like. Uh, later this month, we'll start our meetings, and in January, we'll have wall-to-wall -wall meetings for most of January with all the departments in state government, uh, where they get a chance to, to meet with me and, and 
I tell them what we're planning for their budget. They get to appeal to me to do something differently than what we may be proposing. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Uh, that'll lead to the presentation of the of a continuation budget in January. That, that's, I'm not going to get into any detail on that, but that's projecting long-term budgets in the future that are, that are not driven by what the REC says. Um, uh, so you don't you don't um, anticipate the REC meeting having to be later um, to throw off the budgeting process time-wise? No, we, we've all agreed it'll be, we don't have the specific date yet, but it will be in the second week of January. That'll give our this time to properly evaluate the December revenue numbers. So we'll have six months worth of this fiscal year to base our revenue projection on. The economists will recommend a change if they deem it appropriate, either up or down, based upon the six months of actuals. And, and we will have a forecast, I think we'll all be able to agree on, that will take us into the, um, the legislative session that will begin in April. Perfect. So that kind of covers what's on this slide. Um, the the uh, budget will be presented, some, I think, on February 28th, very, very much toward the end of February. And then the legislative so, uh, session begins in April. And we will meet again, REC will meet again during the legislative session to once again adjust the budget forecast if, if need be. Um, okay. I just want to mention there is a debt limit uh, on overall state spending. Um, it, it's not on overall state spending, I should say. It is a, a, an aspect of the budget that limits how much we can go into debt. Can't be more than 6% of the general fund and dedications as recognized by REC. Uh, so this is a very good provision of law that doesn't let us get in over our head on our debt because every year we do go into debt. We have bond issues that fund capital outlay projects, construction projects, roads, highways, buildings, bridges, what have you. Uh, they're funded typically with general obligation bonds, and we usually have a bond issue at least once a year, but there's a limit on what we can do. And, and that's a, a very good thing that we can't get into a situation where we've overextended ourselves on debt. Right. And, and, you know, I just want to mention or ask you too, Commissioner, um, you know, with that debt limit, a lot of people always wonder, especially at the local level, well, you know, we need this bridge or we need this, you know, funding for this project in our area. And, you know, it's been tough because we haven't had the capacity to increase the bonds that we float out there in order to fund these projects. Um, and I'm guessing that federal money doesn't get included in that or, right. So, so that, that in this situation we're in now, it's, it's even harder and worse to be able to fund those projects because of that debt limit, correct? Well, the debt limit keeps us honest. It keeps yeah. us ourselves too much, there is always going to be more demand than there is supply because everybody puts their requests in for every need that they have, and obviously not all of them can be satisfied. It becomes a matter of prioritizing what's most important. Uh, area legislators get together and talk about what's the most important thing in their region, and usually that winds up being in the bill. Um, but it, it, there's no no end to what the need is. As we know, our roads and highways are in condition, and uh, we don't capacity to do everything we'd like to do in that area, and the same holds true for state buildings that need to be repaired or replaced. But the capital outlay process is a good one and an important one that enables us to, to fund the ongoing capital needs of, of government. Thanks. 
And uh, finally, one other thing I'll mention in this area, we're in the final throes of a lengthy multi-year implementation of a new enterprise resource planning system um, that is transitioning our outdated, antiquated way of financing into a new system we're calling LaGov. It's tying together our budget process, our accounting, our state purchasing into um, one unit, one system. It's been a gradual implementation of moving departments into this new LaGov system, and we'll complete that process in the, toward the end of 21. And then all of our state entities will be on the LaGov system, and that is going to make it easier to evaluate budget spending. It'll be much easier and more readily available to the general public through Louisiana Checkbook, which we created during the first term, Governor Edwards' first term, the legislature and the governor um, agreed on this, this very good, innovative way of making information available to the public. It's called Louisiana Checkbook. You go to Louisiana Checkbook and you can see every expenditure that the state is making once we complete this entire process. Uh, you can see invoices that are submitted by people doing business with the state. And you can see checks that are literally written by the state to pay our obligations. So it's very much a transparency uh, move that's going to be very beneficial to state government. Very exciting for the people. Yes. So that's really the, the overview, Julie, of the process and, and what we go through in order to prepare the budget. I think we want to talk a little bit now about the state budget and, and what's up the budget and what our challenges are. Yeah, I'm sure that um, this COVID crisis and oil collapsing at the same time, the, the challenges must have been very abundant. I can't wait to hear about your thoughts on some of that. Well, there were many challenges. They were really no different than what we went through in the previous four years when you were here serving in the House, uh, when we had a, a budget problem that had been inherited from the previous administration. We had a billion dollar plus problem that we had to resolve. And so we're, unfortunately, we're kind of used to planning for, for draconian budgets like that if we would have to implement them. We didn't have to do that in the previous term because the legislature reluctantly voted for revenue that we needed to be able to balance the budget. We're not going to be looking at new revenue anymore. The legislature nor the governor have an appetite for any more taxes. So we'll have whatever the revenues generate. Um, and we'll see what, if anything, is forthcoming from the federal government, because that's what enabled us to balance the budget this year. We had a, a lot of money from, that's sent to the states by the federal government to help deal with the pandemic. And we were able to comply with the provisions of that law um, and match up the uh, expenditures that would be allowed under the federal act, and it really helped us with our budget. This pie chart shows you how we spend money, and this is fairly consistent year to year. You can see where the big spending is. 38% of it goes to K-12 education. That's almost $4 billion or so that's dedicated in state general fund dollars to all the school districts across the state. Another 11% is spent on our institutions of higher education, including community and technical colleges, all the way to postgraduate medical schools, law schools, as well as traditional four-year universities and two-year schools. And then 27% of the budget goes to the Department of Health. That draws down matching dollars from the federal government to fund our Medicaid program. We have a, a lot of poverty and a lot of poor people in Louisiana, so we have a lot of people dependent upon the state for medical assistance. And that's what the Medicaid program funds. And you can see 
that together education and, and healthcare make up the large portion of uh, the state's operating budget. And that's a fairly constant number um, each year. Our general fund is around, hovering around $10 billion based upon our tax revenue. It's down now in the forecast because of the pandemic and, and the reduction we've experienced in sales taxes and income taxes. But we're hoping that as calendar year 21 advances, we'll see a resurgence in the economy that will get that number back up to where it was before. So that's kind okay. of where we are well i was gonna say and, and i don't know if you're gonna touch on this but the the issues surrounding um you know discretional versus not discretional when it comes to spending and the department of education a lot of that money is non-discretionary meaning that it's part of the the, the formula that's in the constitution and and then Department of Health, like you were saying, you draw down money on every dollar you spend. So when you don't spend the dollar, you don't get the two dollars or so from the federal government. Correct? Yeah, that's right. It's more like three dollars plus. And, um, and that's I don't have a slide that deals with the discretionary, spending, but you pretty much nailed it. Uh, the Constitution directs how we spend certain dollars and there are other obligations that we have to spend because, for example, court orders or what have you. And that's called a non-discretionary spending. It, it, the money must be spent for those particular purposes. If you look at about a nine to ten billion dollar state general fund, after you deal with all the discretionary, I'm sorry, the non-discretionary expenditures, when you get right down to it, the legislature only has about, and I put air quotes around that, only has about from three to four billion dollars in discretionary spending. That has to take care of a lot of the medical needs of the state as well as the other slivers here in this pie chart that that have to get funded like corrections for example and everything else in government that we haven't talked about so there is really not a huge amount of discretion available to the legislature on how they uh, they spend what is otherwise perceived to be a great deal of money rightfully so because the overall state budget is covers around 30 billion dollars when you throw in fees and, and um, federal dollars because the federal dollars when you match three to one for example it's a it's an awful lot of money that comes in from the federal government with strings attached on how it's spent right well and it's it's kind of a popular misnomer that i know i as a legislator always heard that you know all the cuts are always in healthcare and higher ed and uh, a lot of that um, higher ed problem, which it's been very difficult on higher ed over the last, as you mentioned, at least eight, nine years, um, because everything seems to come out of there. But if Department of Health draws down money and Department of Education really can't be touched, that leaves all those other slivers. And one of the ones that the consumer feels the most is higher ed. Exactly right. And higher ed uh, did not see a budget increase literally for 10 years until we were able to slightly increase the budget in the current budget year. Before the pandemic, we were very optimistic. We had a rosy forecast. We were going to have another surplus. We've had surpluses in the past several years, but uh, we presented in February, right before the pandemic, a very aggressive and ambitious budget. They would have plussed up higher education in a manner in which it had not been plussed up in the past decade. Uh, but literally a few weeks later, the pandemic struck and, and everything bottomed out. We weren't able in the current year to do anything to plus up anybody. In fact, we had to make uh, reductions until the federal dollars became available to kind of came in and save the day. And I'll talk a little 
next about the, the federal dollars if you're ready to, to move on. Yep. I just will mention this. I don't think I, I don't think I covered this earlier. Nationally, we're really recognized as having a very good mechanism in law for dealing with shortfalls and budget deficits. Because we have to have a balanced budget, which is one of the best safeguards we have in state government, anytime we have a deficit as a result of a reduction in the revenue estimating conference's forecast, the governor is required by law to go in and has the authority to cut the general fund by 3% of the total budget. Then we have to go to the Joint Legislative Committee on the Budget, and we have authority to cut dedicated monies and general fund up to 5% of budgets. So uh, this is how we deal with mid-year budget cuts, if you've heard so much about that have unfortunately been a reality up until this administration. Um, you have to go in and make mid-year reductions. It's much more difficult to do that, for example, after six or seven months of a budget year have passed because you've already spent, in accordance with your budget, seven months worth of the year. And so that means the remaining five months have got to be responsible for all these cuts. So it can be very devastating to an agency to have a mid-year cut. We obviously hope and try to avoid that as much as possible. And we have an opportunity to use the rain day fund, the budget stabilization fund, um, when, it's, when it's necessary in order to avoid making some of these cuts. And right now, our, our rain day fund is actually higher than it was when Governor Edwards took office five years ago. So we've all done a good job, the legislature and the administration, making certain we beefed up the revenue estimated conferences best we, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, bud, the uh, budget stabilization fund, the rainy day fund as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I mentioned, just moving to, to this additional topic, I, I mentioned the fact that the federal government uh, saved the day by sending what was called the CARES Act in response to the pandemic, all 50 states and all the territories, Louisiana got about $1.7 billion. And of those dollars, a significant portion, $800 million of that money was set aside to assist local governments with the challenges that they faced in having to spend money in response to the pandemic. The CARES Act was limited to money that was spent in preparation for or response to or mitigation of the pandemic. And we originally put $800 million aside for local governments. The legislature carved out some of that money, created a, a program for a main, what was called a Main Street program for, low, for businesses, for small businesses to the tune of about $300 million. And an additional program of $50 million was established to give a supplement to frontline work. So we wound up having about $524 million that could go to local governments, and we spent every penny of that. That, that program was administered through my office. And just by a couple of weeks ago, we put the finishing touches on the distribution of dollars that would be made in accordance with the Local Cares Act. This just shows you what all parishes got. It's obviously a, a lot of detail, but as you can imagine, uh, Caddo and uh, Jefferson Parish and uh, East Baton Rouge Parish, as well as Orleans Parish, um, were the big uh, parishes that were impacted to the, to the highest degree because of their population base. But literally every parish in the state except one um, submitted a request to, to receive reimbursements. And you can see that everybody got some reimbursement, uh, anything from $159,000 all the way up to uh, 67, 68 million Orleans and Jefferson. Uh, so that really, 
real salvation for local government just like it was for state government. Well, let me ask a question. Um, on on the originally we thought there might be 800 million for local governments but there ended up being 525 million and to to allocate a part to main street and to frontline workers and how did how did that go with the local governments i mean how big of a burden was that on local governments um did how did that go i guess <laughs> wound up being a huge burden on local governments because even though we distributed $524 million in local parish dollars, we had approved an additional 420 some odd million dollars in reimbursable expenses if we had the money. But we did not have the money because it was redirected to the Main Street program and the frontline worker program. That was a decision the legislature made. I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad move, but we felt all along that if we had the entire 800 million for local government, I felt like that, that would probably all be used, but I thought it would probably be enough. Turns out it wasn't. Um, even if we had left all that money there, there would still have been expenditures that could not be satisfied because of uh, the fact that it was only 800 million available for, uh, for local mm -hmm. government. So, so what I understood um, was that at the time that the decision was made, we weren't really sure that local governments would have enough reimbursable expenses to take the whole 800 million? Yeah, there, there, was a, there was a lot of discussion about how much they would use. I felt like they could probably use or get close to using the entire 800 million. Um, there were others that felt like they wouldn't get to that much, but obviously they far exceeded um, that amount. Um, yeah. Everything was said and done, but you know, we have to move very quickly on the CARES program. That's a, another important factor here. We made decisions on how to allocate these dollars to local governments at the very beginning of the pandemic when the, the virus at that point was kind of restricted geographically. New Orleans was being hit, Jefferson was being hit, Baton Rouge was being hit. We didn't know where it was going to spread. We didn't know if it was going to spread everywhere. We felt it probably would. Um, but the decision we made on how to calculate these dollars that went, went to each parish had to be made very early in the game. And we stuck to that. We didn't deviate from that so that everybody would know what the rules were. And it was a, a good thing in retrospect because it enabled us to share dollars with every parish that ultimately uh, had expenses and obligations as a result of virus. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, no question. <laughs> Well, you know, I guess I'm thinking about the future, you know, and I mean, the CARES Act and what will happen with this latest surge, you know, is a bit of a mystery. Um, what do the state FISC prospects look like absent a big package coming from the federal government? We're, we're at a very critical time right now. As I mentioned, REC is going to meet next month and we'll make the projections on, on where we think we'll be for the remainder of this year, as well as what next year's budget is going to look like. Um, we're expecting some activity from Washington this week as we, as we record this. I mean, Congress has got to act pretty quickly. They're going to go home for the recess. And um, if this Congress is to act before they leave, they've got to do it in the next several days. The, the, Conventional wisdom, if you think there can be any coming out of Washington, is that they'll probably do something. We're not sure what. We're not sure what restrictions will be put on that money. The previous CARES Act dollars were tightly restricted. They, they could not go for lost revenue. 
only go to reimburse expenditures that were made related to the pirates. I think the I think it would be a lot more liberal this time in terms of what states can do with that money. I certainly hope it will be. They have a little bit more discretion to as we go forward into next year. Hopefully, in the next year's budget, beginning July one of twenty one, we we won't still be shelling out money in response to the pandemic. Waning yeah. that vaccinations will be taking place and. Uh, so the money that we get to help us for next year's budget is going to have to be for revenue replacement, I hope. Yeah. What about the, the question of local governments versus business? Um, do you think that if there's another, you know, CARES Act allocation that uh, some of it will go local government, some of it will go back into Main Street? Or what do you? what's your projection? I'm guessing, I don't know, but my guess is Congress will probably allocate money for states, for local governments, and for small businesses. I think they'll probably do it themselves instead of leaving it to the states to do it. If they don't, I think there'll be a significant demand on the legislature and on legislatures everywhere to continue to support small businesses that have been hammered, obviously, uh, during the past year. There have been economic losses and challenges, and all because of the fact that they had to, there had to be a clamping down on the economy because of the pandemic. As, as we've seen, um, when people aren't wearing masks and people are not properly social distancing, you have these surges and the, the virus is still here and it's not going to go away until we can uh, have a vaccine that, that's going to be able to take care of the needs of the country. Right. Yeah. Um, so what about, you know, I, you hear all these numbers every day on COVID and I saw another huge you know, spike and not spike, but another continuation of what's a massive spike in Louisiana and certainly nationwide. You think there's any shot that we don't fall back into a really tough situation in a couple of weeks and into January? Well, I, I saw this morning Dr. Fauci is anticipating the Christmas problem is going to be worse than the Thanksgiving problem, which was worse than the Labor Day problem. Go back to the problem. You know, everybody starts more, we've seen clearly there have been surges and spikes in cases. And, um, it really kind of depends on, on how people uh, comply and continue to comply in Louisiana as well as all across the country with uh, what states are having to do to control the spread. It, it, I, I understand the, the mindset of people who won't wear masks, who refuse to wear masks, or who think that this is some kind of a hoax. And when you look at the tragic fatalities all over the country and you see the hospital numbers and you understand the, the pain people are going through and the problems that families are having. Um, this thing, unfortunately, is very real and it's very viral, um, obviously, and, and it'll take uh, vaccinations on a large-scale basis to, to end the pandemic as we know it. Hopefully, as everyone is saying, there's light at the end of the tunnel and we feel like in 21 things are going to get better and, and it's going to take a few months into the year before the vaccinations can be uh, spread around enough to really do the kind of good that needs to be done. Yeah, to make a dent in it. So, you know, I I'm wondering for this fiscal year, are we anticipating a surplus right now? We were hoping that that would be the case because the forecast has been lowered so much um, after the beginning of the pandemic. It literally was lowered about a billion dollars. So, um, but it's also a reflection of the reality of the economy. I was hopeful we would have a surplus in the current year. I think at the end of the day, we probably will. I'm not sure. It depends on where REC goes and, and what happens in the next few months. But 
a very healthy surplus in the last fiscal year, uh, you know, almost $500 million. And we had um, $200 million or so in the year before that. So we, we have surpluses. And surpluses are a good thing. You're either going to have a surplus or you're going to have a deficit at the end of a budget year. You're never going to hit it right And so it's a good thing to have a surplus because it lets us invest money in our rainy day fund. It lets us take care of some of the pressing needs that may not have been covered already in the current year budget. And certainly that'll be the case this year. What What's the price of oil right now in comparison to how it's in the budget? I don't, I don't know, but I haven't checked in the past couple of days as to what it is. In the budget, we have, I think, somewhere in the low 40s, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe in the high 30s. Um, revisit that again. But, you know, oil revenue is not the be-all and end-all of state right. government. In the 1980s, um, it was about 40% of the state's budget was based on royalty and severance tax. Now it's around 10% or so. Um, so it's no longer the, the economic driver of our, our revenue picture. It's still an economic driver of our economy, though, because yeah. it's a part of what we do. And so it drives sales taxes, drives income taxes, but it, it's not the, the main driver in the, in the state's budget, which is mostly sales tax and personal income tax. Right. Well, you know, after all of those years where we had mid-year cuts and budget deficits and, I mean, mid-year cuts, obviously you can't set a budget with a deficit, um, but, you know, the mid-year cuts. And, you know, what happened in the last four or five years? What did we do, in just a brief overview, of to get out of that mess of that cyclical, you know, budget deficit, mid-year cut? combination of two things. First of all, this administration did not use non-recurring dollars to fund recurring expenses. We live within our means and we only spend what was deemed to be recurring. That is, it's going to come back year after year after year. That was a huge part of the solution. It seems like a simple, obvious way to handle a budget, but it's not the way it was handled in the previous administration. Every year they would go find pots of money that were not going to come back and they would use that to build up the budget so they wouldn't have to make dramatic cuts and they wouldn't have to raise taxes. The Governor General was, would not even consider, and therefore the legislature didn't either, any revenue sources. Instead, they did in this fiction, um, lurching from year to year with non-recurring dollars funding recurring expenses. We said, no, we got, we got to be in the real world. And the legislature, conservative though it is, recognized that the only way to fix things was to raise revenue. And the legislature voted to raise a significant amount of revenue. That coupled with, um, I would say, fiscally responsible budgeting on our part enabled us to right the ship, create surpluses, and have a realistic budget that was not built on a house of cards. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm, you know, at the end or at the end of the Jindal administration and the beginning of the Edwards, this Edwards administration, um, you know, just a, 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 a cataclysmic event of using up all the one-time money at the same time that oil crashed and just the world came tumbling down around us. Um, so yeah, now that, go ahead. That, that uh, all the one-time money got expended and ran out just about the time that that term was ending this was beginning. And whoever had been governor would have inherited this man. That's right. There's going to be a billion dollar, potential $2 billion problem uh, with the budget that the new legislature and the new governor would have to have faced. And obviously, we faced, the legislature faced it and we fixed it. 
Yeah. Well, and it was a big deal because if you remember what you said just a little while ago, there's maybe three billion to four billion of discretionary income to make cuts. And when we walked in in what was that, 2016, 2017, 20 mm-hmm. Yeah, we walked in with a two point one billion dollar deficit. You know, and having to figure out cuts. And everybody, you included, who were there, and you were an instrumental part of trying to help him fix things, but took a look at what those cuts would look like. And, and even the most conservative anti-tax lawmaker got to say, we can't, simply can't sustain it. We can't close universities. We can't not provide medical care. We can't do the kind of things that were very realistically going to have to happen if there was not a solution. That's right. That's right. Um, it's, 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 it's hard to govern. You know, governing is a difficult thing, and you can't you can't govern by rhetoric. I mean, you could try. And, to be in the legislature and to throw bombs, and I know that I did it during times that I was a legislator. I, I came in as, as the guy throwing you know, hand grenades over the wall in the, in the Edwin Edwards administration, calling for less less government, smaller government, making cuts and proposed cuts. And, and so I, I understand it is very difficult to make cuts, and it's very easy to, to throw bombs when you're not governing. But when you're in the majority, you've got to govern, you've got to make decisions, you have to make responsible decisions. Right. Well, and, you know, that's part of what we're about at Elevate Louisiana is trying to um, really talk about the facts of governing and the facts of what, you know, makes our state what we are and what our opportunities are and um, to try to do that in a very fact-based manner and get that word out so that so it's easier to govern and more people have the knowledge to know what um, needs to happen to make Louisiana anything above 48th. You know, I mean, it's just I want to see us recognize a time where Louisiana is known as a state that educates a lot of people. And we've got we've moved a lot of people out of poverty through a successful economy. And um, you need actual knowledge and not not rhetoric for that. We're never going to move off the bottom of those lists until we recognize the importance of education and the need to provide enough dollars to, to make it work. And, and, you know, there's no expression, don't confuse me with the facts. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't want to get confused by facts. And, and the political rhetoric gets in the way of making the kind of progress that we need. Um, and, and it's always going to be a political landscape. That's never going to change. And that's reality. But uh, we also have to come together as a state, just like we have to come together as a nation. It's, something and stop the political infighting bickering and recognize that we have to govern by consensus of bringing all different viewpoints together and doing what's best. Well, amen. <laughs> Again, I, I think it's great that you, you, you're getting people engaged and understanding facts and, and trying to become advocates to, to help move Louisiana off the bottom of those lists. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate you sharing um, the last 30, 40 minutes with us. Um, it's probably about all the time we have for today, but we want to thank you so much, Commissioner Jay Darden, for being here. Um, this, thank you so much. This will air um, soon. And when you hear this, you can know that on January 29th, we do have planned a symposium where the commissioner and several other speakers will be speaking to our group. Um, it'll probably be a hybrid event. Um, it's hard to tell these days, um, but it will be on the 29th. We have an agenda, whether or not there's some portion of it that will be allowed to be um, actually in person with a very safe COVID protocol or not. Um, we will have an event, albeit 
physical or virtual or a little bit of both. Um, so you can also go to our website at elevatela.org and beware that that is elevate with two L's in the word elevate. So it's E-L-L-E vatela.org. Um, you can look at that website for information on the group, uh, for when that symposium will be coming up, and um, for links to all of our social media and all of the interviews that I've done, like the one we're doing right now with the commissioner. Um, and, uh, you know, since this was the first of the four-part series on the State FISC, I really hope that you'll join us at that symposium on the 29th. And finally, don't forget to like Elevate on all social media platforms and please share this video cast and the podcast that you'll find on everywhere that you get your podcasts um, if you found it interesting. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and we'll see you next time.